welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We're going to turn our Bibles again to Acts chapter 5. I've titled today's message, Picking Up the Broken Pieces of the Kingdom. I'll begin reading from verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. the, The miracles are just extraordinary. But let's not fail to begin where verse 11 leaves off. We're reminded there that that fear overcame the whole church and and everyone who had heard of the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Yet the gathering of the elect expands. In fact, the church expands exponentially. Verse 11 is the uh, first appearance of the word church in the book of Acts. Uh, that term there, ecclesia, it, it describes an orderly gathering of a congregation together. Uh, and in verse 7, it describes a whole church. The whole church. The entire church was gathering together in verse 12. And following the removal of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, once again, the the whole church is restored to a a pure church. The Spirit has purified the church so that there came again, uh, once again, a separation. Uh, And as verse 13 reveals, uh, none of the rest of the unbelievers, they, they didn't even dare to associate with the apostles or the church. Uh, Though esteeming them highly for their behavior, there's a result of the Spirit's purging. Uh, We find that verse 12 reveals they were gathering again uh, all in one holy accord. All in one accord. Uh, This gathering itself is a miracle. It's, It's astonishing considering that the whole church at this point in time consisted, consisted of at least 10,000 believers in Jerusalem, potentially even 20,000 or more. 
And at this point in time, it is growing. And though God is greatly feared for what has occurred, uh, the church just keeps on growing and growing. It is constantly adding more numbers to the body of Christ, more members to Christ's body. I stated this three weeks ago, but it's worth restating again today in light of this passage, verses 12 through 16. The whole church must stand resilient against any seeker-sensitive model of church growth. There's a modern approach of diluting doctrine to where where no unbeliever could could possibly be offended or or fear. Just striving to fill a a building called Christ's church with unbelievers. That's what we see Uh, very prominent in our day. Uh, But this passage states that none of the rest, meaning none of those who were unbelievers, they didn't even dare to associate with the church. After Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't dare to approach the apostles um, due to the purging that was induced by the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit's work to purge. But seemingly ironic is a divine result. Verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, multitudes were constantly being added to their their number. Friends, it is impossible to grow Christ's church with unbelievers. It's completely impossible. And a reverence for God, a little fear in our passage and in this chapter, it does not hinder church growth. It rather enhances church growth. And those who are truly being drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit, they will eventually embrace even even the most difficult of apostolic doctrine. 1 Peter 1.17, the Apostle Peter writes, "...conduct yourselves in fear." during your time of your stay on earth, uh, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Folks, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Forgiveness of sins, it produces a reverence, an awe and a reverence in our hearts. Uh, There is a regard for God's judgment, a repentance of sins. And God's grace flows from a gruesome and bloody cross. That's where grace comes from, a, a bloodied cross. Folks, grace does not flow through reinventing the gospel to make it appealing to unbelievers. Eventually, this early church grew, it grew exponentially, not out of fear. It didn't grow due to fear, but it grew in an atmosphere of fear, where Christians embraced personal responsibilities uh, 
things that must accompany church growth. To begin with, uh, for one, we all must prophesy. You're like, uh oh, where is this going? No, we, we all must prophesy. And we, we see that illustration when the Apostle Paul urges Christians in Corinth to prophesy. All of you prophesy, uh, but for those who may be new, we've covered this multiple times in the past, uh, to prophesy does not mean to tell the future. The Hebrew term for prophecy uh, doesn't mean just to say things that will happen in the future. No, no, rather, it means to speak forth the word of God in very clear and intelligible terms. That, that's what to prophesy, that's what a prophet did. Thus forth, uh, he'd say, this is the declaration of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That's what, what it means to prophesy is to speak for the Lord. Speak clearly for the Lord. Um, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, and verse 24, this prophesying, this speaking forth God's word, it, it facilitates conversion. Paul there writes, if all prophesy, and that is a positive exhortation, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. Why? Because all prophesy. He's called to account by all, so he understands what they're saying. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. That comes through the word of God. And the result is that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's the result of prophesying. People understand, they respond. Even an unbeliever who enters, an ungifted man, will fall on his face and worship. Folks, that gives us our purpose for living right here, to speak forth the word of God um, so boldly. Speaking forth God's word boldly is exactly what the Jerusalem church had been praying for in the previous context. Uh, they had set their minds to do it back in chapter 4 and verse 31. Go ahead and take a peek there. It says, when they had prayed, so they were praying, when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They gathered, they prayed, they prophesied, speaking forth the word of God with boldness and surprise. The Jerusalem church keeps on growing. Because prophesying is the means by which an unbeliever is convicted of their sins. Their, their heart is laid bare before the Lord and the secrets of his or her heart are disclosed by the word, and uh, by that word, he or she is compelled to fall on their face and worship God out of reverence. Boom. That's how, that's how it happens. But remove any one of these elements. Remove any one of these elements. Disregard the church gathering. Abandon prayer meetings. Stop prophesying. Remove a bold witness of the gospel uh, from the equation. What are you left with? American Christianity. 
virtually every church in America uh, neglects at least one of these fundamental elements uh, inside. All struggle to a certain degree, including ourselves. We're going to get to the miracles in just a minute. I know that that's what you all showed up for, right? The miracles. Um, but before we do, don't fail to recognize it was the, the whole church that was gathering together. It was the whole church that was praying together. Uh, the whole church was to prophesy in Solomon's portico, speaking the word of God with boldness. I have a photo here for you of what was called Herod's temple. Solomon's portico, it was a massive structure along the east side, the lower edge that you are looking at there. A massive structure along the eastern side of the temple complex. It is described by uh, historical books as having, um, having covered the entire length of the eastern side, and that would have made it 606 feet long. So uh, uh, right about two football fields long. Um, estimates vary, uh, but a consensus of historians uh, seems to suggest it could easily house thirty to 50,000 people. Some think even more. Jesus is described as, um, in, in John chapter 10, verse 22, as asserting his deity in this same portico uh, during the Feast of Dedication. That was about four months prior to his crucifixion at Passover. Um, Jesus told the Jews, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then this, I and the Father are one. That's when they started picking up stones. They were ready to stone God's son. Uh, that happened here in this portico. Solomon's portico also became the facility where the whole church gathered to worship. A word about those corporate gatherings of Christ's church from John Calvin. Some consider him an expert on the topic. But concerning this passage in Acts chapter 5, he writes, quote, Luke signifieth unto us that they were to meet together at certain hours, not only for doctrine and prayer's sake, but that they might win others to the Lord, as occasion was given. Every man lived at home at his own house, but they had their meetings there. Assuredly, no body of the church can otherwise continue. For if every man be his own teacher and pray apart by himself, and if there be no meetings and assemblies, the church will decay and come to naught. Luke saith that they were all of one mind, uh, to the end that we may know that they did all keep that order willingly, uh, that no man was so disordered as to keep himself at home, neglecting the public assembly." Unquote. What Calvin is saying is that the church in Acts, it, it didn't consist of those 
reclining at home and scrolling through YouTube videos. But in this portico, there were 12 apostles who shared the public teaching of 10 to 20,000 people. Gathering of people. Uh, They also added, we will see auxiliary ministries as well when we get to Acts chapter 6. But the corporate gathering of the church in one location for teaching and for prayer was enacted from the very beginning. They all remained of one accord. At the same time, and and at the hands of the apostles, don't miss that, uh, many signs and wonders were taking place to where multitudes of men and women were being constantly added. Uh, (laughs) Added were so many that it became impossible to quantify. Couldn't quantify the number of new believers, so uh, though it's difficult to quantify and we Kind of hard to try. We aren't exactly sure. It's a lot. Uh, The passage does, however, help us to qualify them. What kind of believers were added? Beyond the assemblies, beyond the corporate assembly, what were their priorities in the early church? Before we answer that, uh, let's qualify the miracles of the apostles, just, just for review. We've been through this, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Uh, Paul calls the miracles signs of a true apostle. Uh, that is 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And, and here's why. Here's why. Briefly, some qualities of apostolic healings. You ready? These are similar to the qualities of Jesus when he healed. Number one, no period of recovery. Healing was immediate and the restoration was complete. Number two, no hospital admission. Number three, no follow-up treatments or therapies. Number four, no surgery. Number five, no prescription medications. Number six, no accompanying doctor bill. Free of charge from the apostles as well. Uh, But if any of these aforementioned criteria accompany your recovery, uh, though we know God works marvels today, but if any of these aforementioned criteria accompany accompany your recovery, the healing was not apostolic. Okay, But many... What these many miracles establish is that there was a continuation. There there was an expansion of the healings like occurred with the lame beggar. Remember him back in chapter 3? And in verse 12, we're assured that all 12 apostles get in on the action. They're all playing ball now. And do you know what I find most astonishing about this passage And I mean this from my heart, I really do. What is most astonishing about this passage made me jump out of my seat this week in my study. It was exponential growth, right? No. Uh, The number of miraculous healings. No. The exorcisms of the unclean spirits. No. I I don't know. The shadow of Peter. No. Rather, what 
truly amazes me is the compassionate behavior of these early Christians. And this is because they were the ones who began entering into their neighbors' homes to seek out and to find whether there were any inside who were broken. And then they carried them whatsoever distance and over any terrain required to make those persons whole again. Friends, the shadow is not the hero of this story. It's where everybody gets distracted and sidetracked and fixated on the shadow as if they put on blinders, can't see beyond it. All that stupid shadow had to do was follow Peter around. That wasn't hard. It was these Christians who picked up and carried the broken who proved to be the real laborers of God's kingdom. They were the laborers sent into the harvest. Have you ever picked up and carried an adult person? Average size person. Do you recall how difficult it is to get an average size adult, even even a medium-sized adult, uh, off of the floor and into a chair? Ever dealt with that? One time, I carried a man from one room into another. Now I call the fire department. It's hard. It's hard. Have you ever physically carried a broken human being to church? Me neither. What a shame. We saw a pattern here first emerge with a lame beggar. There were people carrying him to the temple every day. They were dealing with dead weight. Um, It is quite a feat to get a person from a house and carry them down to a street corner. And once at the temple, have to go up some stairs as well. Um, And it appears that some of these early Christians, they were... They were willing to even carry the broken for miles. Knowing that their neighbors could be made whole in the name of Jesus from Nazareth. In fact, it seems to have become a habit of some of those early Christians. um, Because multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they... Well, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and, and they were all being healed. All. I was considering just stopping 
for about five minutes of silence right there. They were carrying people, and all were being healed. Because before the broken could be healed, they first had to be brought. In Isaiah chapter 61, our scripture reading earlier, uh, you may recall that Jesus read part of that passage in his hometown of Nazareth. He stopped reading directly before the day of vengeance uh, to signify that there remained an open season for repentance. That season today remains open. We do not know how much longer. As I read it again, ask yourself if there's a reason that Scripture records Jesus um, reading this passage on only one occasion and to the people whom he had first known while growing up as his neighbors. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, uh, giving them a, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness. It's the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. In, in Acts chapter 5, those afflicted and brokenhearted they were not healed until the Christians sought them out and brought them out, at least within earshot of where the apostles were preaching. What we're actually to conclude from uh, Peter's shadow, folks, it is a lesson on proximity. There's, there's nothing mystical about Peter's shadow. All the shadow indicates is that the early Christians drew their crippled and broken neighbors close. They brought them near. The shadow didn't do anything. At high noon, they didn't have to scoot the people really, really close to Peter in order to get them under his short shadow. No, the, the time of day, the length of the shadow is not at all the point of our passage. Rather, it is how they were bringing the lost close enough to hear that God's Son had been crucified for their sins. Calvin again, quote, for the apostles were endued with such power for this cause, because they were ministers of the gospel. Therefore they used this gift, inasmuch as it served to further the credit of the gospel. Yea, God did no less show forth his power in their shadow than in their mouth. 
John MacArthur also acknowledges, uh, though, quote, Scripture does not say Peter's shadow ever healed anyone. In fact, the healing power of God through him seemed to go far beyond his shadow. Then MacArthur quotes, they were all being healed. Not just those who fell under the shadow. Folks, the healing extended far beyond the shadows of Peter and all of the other apostles. Wow. Again, the reference to shadow, it implies a proximity. They strive to bring their broken neighbors close to the apostles, close to the gathering of God's people. And as a result of this, multitudes were being healed. Multitudes were being added to the church. And unlike Ananias and Sapphira, these weren't dying. The unbelievers, out of fear, are staying away. So how did the Christians know who they could dare to bring close? Anything about that? I think the answer is self-evident. But, but, but first, those who were broken and, and who had evil spirits, they, they needed to be brought to the apostles. Because verse 12, the signs and wonders came only at the hands of the apostles. Well, of course, they, they, they are the signs of a true apostle. Uh, so even in the early church, the, the earliest records of the church, when so many miracles were occurring, and, and you've got 10,000, maybe 20,000 Christians uh, born again by the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, indwelt by the Spirit of God. So many people, uh, yet the healing powers had been bestowed only to the 12 apostles. Verse 12, it was at their hands. So miracles and the signs and the wonders, they were not signs of the common everyday Christian. If every Christian possessed these same apostolic gifts, what we would have observed in the early church record is that multitudes of Christians simply were fanning out and entering into people's homes and healing them there on the spot. Could have avoided all of the carrying and bringing them to the apostles and into Jerusalem if everybody had those same gifts. Ah, heal them right in their homes would have saved a lot of effort of carrying everyone to the apostles. Uh, but that's not what happened, is it? Instead, they, they, they were to seek out the broken pieces of the kingdom. They, they were to pick them up and bring them close to the church, or at least as close as they could possibly get them. You know, lay them Lay them in the street if you have to. Bring them close. Lay them out on cots. Uh, who knows? Maybe Peter or, or John or James or Andrew will, will, will pass by. The closer we get them, the more opportunity there is for healing. It's, it's incredible. And a major emphasis in our text is to point out that 
that these miraculous healings are associated with the hands of the 12 apostles and not everybody else. And the conclusion at the end of verse 16 tells us that they were all healed. At this point in time, there was no disability, no demon, no disease that the apostles could not handle. And this is not the first time Jesus delegated power over all diseases to his apostles, his disciples, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 10, um, therefore later on in Acts, I don't find it at all uh, problematic uh, that people were healed by Paul's handkerchief. I, I don't find that any more or less unusual than Peter's shadow. So I'm not bothered at all by Jesus' apostles' healings. Uh, what bothers me is the false healers today. There are going to come a few others also that heal, don't get me wrong, uh, uh, select people of extremely rare character. We're going to read about Stephen coming up in Acts chapter 6 and then on into chapter 7, who was willing to give his life to die for the gospel. Said there were some signs coming through him as well, um, but not through everybody. E even the apostles' own capacity to, capacity to heal began to fade by the end of Acts uh, in, in 2 Timothy, we read the Apostle Paul had to leave his beloved brother uh, Trophimus behind in Miletus, sick. Paul said, I had to leave him behind, he was so sick, so, well, I guess Paul couldn't heal him at that point. It was no longer all diseases. Other indications uh, include Paul himself suffering a severe illness later on in Galatia, you find that in Galatians chapter 4, uh, where it appears that no believer in Galatia, the region of Galatia, could do anything about it. So apostolic healings were universal early on, um, as we see in Acts chapter 5. They were all healed. But the signs and wonders began to fade nearing the close of the apostolic age. We can, we can discuss that. That's a different topic for a different day. Uh, we have to draw to a close on our passage and apply. Um, sure, surely we can agree. Surely we can agree the reason Christ has not yet returned is because there remain broken pieces of the kingdom out there that need to be picked up and carried close. They're, they're yet to be gathered. They are yet to be made whole. Or else Jesus would come. And early on, it was easy to identify unbelievers who would, well, not, not dare to associate with the church. They were easy to identify. Uh, so how did these early Christians discern who they could bring near without placing them in danger? Considering what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Their approach appears seemingly straightforward and easy to answer. It was the ones who they had to pick up and carry. It was the ones who were broken. The broken were the people willing to acknowledge, I'm not well. I'm broken. 
Jesus assured, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So it would seem that we might seek out people who are brokenhearted over their sins. Broken in life. The sinners are not to fear Jesus. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And we are the ones God is using, calling them to come near. There's no fear. You're a sinner. There's no fear of Jesus in here. We learned earlier when, uh, well, when an unbeliever enters, uh, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. Uh, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Those who are broken today are brought near to rejoice that their sins have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's why Christ declared, I have come to preach the good news, and this is the favorable year of the Lord. Even the worst of sinners now understands that they can be cleansed of all sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. All will be healed. And Isaiah 61 speaks of us who have trusted in, in Jesus, saying that they will be called oaks of righteousness. They're the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That's us. Uh, the immoral woman, uh, the one who wiped Jesus' feet with her, with her tears and her hair, uh, she heard this reply. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. She came to Christ broken over her sins, and she left completely whole. Likewise, there was a woman at the well in John chapter 4, she ran into town as a result, told everyone, come see the man. She brought them directly to the man, Jesus. She too was restored. And in Acts chapter 5, uh, I would have to believe that those who were healed, listen to this, I would have to believe that those who were healed of the most crippling of demons and diseases, they would have become the ones who turned around and traveled out the furthest to seek out others, more broken pieces, and then carry them back into the kingdom. I would not doubt. I would not doubt that it was the crippled beggar from John chapter or from Acts chapter three. I would not doubt that it is the crippled beggar himself who needed to be carried on a mat for around 40 years, who turned around and started this ministry. 
I bet he said, I bet he concluded, he said, now it's our job to bring them close. And when a woman or a man previously sick, afflicted, would rise up from their mat, I imagine that they would gaze out over the horizon outside of Jerusalem. And among them, they would say, you know, hold my Dr. Pepper. I may need to walk for a week, but I'm going to be back next Sunday and I'm going to be carrying somebody with me. So I guess there are only a few remaining questions for us, for you and for me. How much have we been forgiven? How much do we love? And how far are we willing to walk? With Mother's Day and, and Father's Day approaching, I, w- I was asked this past week about whether I'd make a few statements over the next several weeks for moms and for dads. Sure. I, w- I would have to conclude that when these fathers entered a home to carry out a sick person, uh, uh, that father would, at least some of those fathers, would have brought their children along. Many sons and daughters probably watched as their dads exhausted themselves to seek out the broken neighbors and then to carry them whatever distance was necessary to set them down within the proximity of the church and the apostles who preached Christ. I I would also have to imagine that they experienced a sadness, probably encountered some people along the way, some broken and sick and afflicted people uh, who simply would not come. Demanded to be left alone. Yet even in experiencing rejection, uh, those sons and daughters would have learned by watching the sacrifice of their dad and of their mom. They would have learned what is of supreme importance in their family's life. In Acts chapter 5, these gals, these guys had figured it out. Uh, All these people, by the way, had had been a Christian uh, for the most two years. The apostles walked with Jesus a little while longer, but this is less than two years in on the church. All of them are fairly new. But these dads and moms, even with their lack of of time in the church, uh, these dads and moms uh, were not perpetually sucking their spiritual fingers. The children were watching every day, observing what it is that means most to mom and dad. And the Christianity, it led to action. It, it led to them gathering together. It led to them praying together. It led to them speaking with boldness. And it la- led to them gathering together all of the remaining broken pieces of the kingdom that they could find, uh, even if carrying people 
cost them their time or cause them inconvenience in their day. But just, just think of the time. People are walking at this time. That's, that's the primary mode of travel. Think of the time and the physical effort that these, these early Christians invested in building the kingdom of Christ. Have you noticed by comparison what Christianity has been reduced to today? Today it's pretty much defined as looking up the latest five-minute video clip and clicking share. I've done it. I'll continue to do it. But many exhaust themselves no further than that for the kingdom. And our children notice. Notice. 